I'm Alan Argyle and I'm joined by our Investor Relations Specialist, Nikki Catrickillis-Vagnet, to talk about a subject really close to, I think, both of our hearts, but particularly through a lens of listed companies, I would suggest. So, Nikki, one of the things that I always grapple with, particularly when working in simulations or real life, is we all accept that we've got to engage with our stakeholders, there's sometimes a sequence, there's priorities, there's tiers, but I'm never quite sure when the market needs to hear about things first. When, for example, a JSC sends announcement needs to be at the top of the list before you're talking to colleagues, before you're talking to clients, because clearly, you know, if the market does need to be informed, they do need to be treated as a priority audience. Tell us sort of when, you know, is it, a, is it around financial considerations, market impact? Does it go beyond that? When should your investment community be the first people you're talking to in a crisis? Thanks, Alan. And, and you're right. This topic is close to both of our hearts. So the JSC listing requirements have guidelines in terms of what listed entities can consider as priority information that needs to go to the market. And they start out with price sensitive information. So if it's information that the listed entity is aware of that could potentially move the share price, then they do need to disclose it via SENS. SENS is the format that JSC recognizes as acknowledging that the information has gone far and wide and that any interested party, whether a shareholder or another stakeholder, has the information. However, things have evolved, and although that is a guideline as to when you should release a SENS, the market rewards transparency and uh, candidness much more than companies that are perceived to be cagey or guarded in terms of the information they provide. Perhaps an example will go a long way. For example, regulation was implemented throughout the period of national disaster under COVID-19, and uh, the Department of uh, Trade and Industry, as well as the Competition Commission, put out regulation with regards to price gouging. The Competition Commission would respond to any complaints around pricing of certain products, and when they would investigate, they would either not levy a fine or levy a fine. And the fines would be relatively small, but that is a good example of perhaps uh, listed entities who were caught up in this to acknowledge their involvement in it and to give their side of the story and to be quite open and transparent as to the implications. Even if the fine wasn't material or price sensitive for that matter, that would be a good opportunity just to be open and transparent, not only to their shareholders, but all other stakeholders. So although price-sensitive information is a guide, uh, I think internally there should be a level of uh, willingness to be a little bit more transparent outside of the guidelines of the listing requirements. Because price-sensitive information is, is ultimately a very subjective measure. You're not quite sure whether your controversial ad that's making the front pages could tomorrow impact on your share price. If I'm understanding correctly, you're recommending sort of err on the side of greater transparency rather than less transparency. Yes. As I said in my opening remarks, the market rewards transparency and also the markets who are made up usually of sophisticated and institutional investors will acknowledge that business is not always a straight line and they will reward those management teams that come out with not only blue sky on information but also about the challenges they're facing and more importantly what they're doing about them. We do a lot of crisis simulations to prepare big corporates and small organizations for a storm if it ever breaks. A lot of those are in conjunction with big audit firms, for example, 
where the reputational side of things is what we are representing, had some pretty robust debates over the years around this whole issue of do you need to inform the market? In some of the scenarios, it's been scripted that they've perhaps been exposed to a cyber incident, lost a couple of hundred million rand. The amount is almost immaterial to to the scenario because it's really just to trigger some other contingency issues. But folks say, no, that's less than 1% or less than 5% of our turnover. We don't need to inform the market. I'm saying, yeah, a couple hundred million rands, victim of a cyber attack. Surely that's something, you know, regardless of what the empirical measures are, that we should be out there telling the investment community. Absolutely, because it doesn't only talk to the uh, financial impact or the amount. Uh, it could be small, to your point, 1% is not material, especially if you're a top 40 company. However, it does talk to your governance and your process. So I think it's important that you proactively go out and communicate any kind of reputational or cyber attack to the example that you've alluded to because it does talk to your processes and it talks to you being proactive and driving the story rather than finding that it's leaked to the market without you being proactive and then you find that you're on the back foot and you're trying to defend yourself as opposed to being proactively going out there with the story and driving your messaging yourself rather than it being driven by a third party participant. One of the things we try to do at Aprio is to build resilience, build preparation, build mitigation interventions to try and ensure that if a crisis does hit an organisation, you come through the other side with as minimal damage and as much reputational capital intact in that. One of the routes we, we go is to work closely with risk managers, business continuity managers, because this can't be done in isolation. I know that yourself and together with Aprio Credence, we've looked at risks at, at the JSE Top 40, New York Top 40. Try to talk the language of those risk managers. There's the usual suspects at the top of that. You know, it could be Forex, it could be balance sheet, it could be liquidity risk. What I haven't seen come through overtly is anything around shareholder activism risks. You know, whether that's down as, a, as an impact, whether it's as an outcome, are they missing a trick if they're not considering at least the power of shareholder activists these days? I think they are, Alan, and I'm glad you raised that as, as something that's that's emerging. So what we've seen in the last couple of years is that something called index funds, so they don't actively manage their portfolios, they invest in your stock if you are a constituent of an index. They have become what has been coined as activists. So they will buy up a, a number of shares and then they will be quite vocal either in terms of public disclosures, so for example, letters that are distributed via social platforms or to CEOs specifically in terms of what they're focusing on. And more interestingly is that they're moving away from financial metrics and looking at ESG measures. ESG is the acronym that represents environmental, social and governance. And they're saying that companies who are not focused on ESG metrics will be less likely to generate profitable returns going forward. So especially environmental impacts, I mean, if you're in high impact businesses that have significant impact on the environment, you're probably at the top of the list in terms of their focus areas. But what we've also noticed is that when shareholders approach management teams with either a letter or a, a strategy and the management teams are a little bit dismissive because obviously they're running the business, 
it can move from a conversation directly with management to a very public debate as to whether the management team is the right team to be running the business. So it has evolved over the years from being truly activist to, uh, you know, being concerned about their investments and especially in the, in terms of index funds, they don't have the luxury of exiting the stock. They have to maintain their investment because they're an index fund. So it's evolved from corporate raiders. Corporate raiders would buy up the stock, then eventually buy the company, uh, chop it up and extract value that way. While activist shareholders are expecting management teams to respond to their requirements and to their needs. So that can be quite disruptive to management time if you are not adequately prepared, if you haven't taken executives through their paces to understand the evolution of these various campaigns and various approaches by shareholders going forward, especially as environmental, social and governance aspects are becoming more and more relevant in terms of how companies can create value, especially long-term value. And part of their modus operandi as activists would be trying to get as much visibility for their issues, ESG issues, for example, as possible. Annual results presentations, AGMs, perfect opportunity. At the very least, should there be more emphasis on just preparing uh, executive teams for tough questions from those activists on those conference calls, on those results presentations? Absolutely. So to your point, it's becoming, these platforms are becoming more regular platforms in terms of even the smallest shareholders to voice their opinions and to voice their dissent if they do have it. So I think it's imperative that management teams at the very least have one dry run and prepare for the worst outcome and ensure that their body language is intact, that their answers are specific and to the point and that they don't add to what can become quite a controversial engagement. Yeah, those shareholder activists, as you say, typically have a a handful of shares sometimes, if not more. But I've got a collection of these examples where executive teams have banned the media from their results presentations because they're not shareholders. Is that kind of approach culture? Does it still have any sway today? Because clearly that's not something that we'd be recommending. No, and it's not something that you should be doing. The role and the relevance of stakeholders, whether they're shareholders or whether they're not, and I think that's also a topic that's evolving, is that you run the company for all stakeholders, not just shareholders. So to discriminate against one specific stakeholder group over another because they don't own shares... I think that is in itself uh, setting you up for, for some reputational damage in terms of that approach. I do agree that shareholders to some extent are different stakeholders because they are the only stakeholder group that actually puts capital at risk. But it doesn't mean that you should discriminate against another stakeholder or treat a stakeholder group at a certain event differently. You know, you run the company for all stakeholders. Some issues may be more relevant to one stakeholder group than another, but it should be addressed all on one platform. Going to throw you a curveball, but it's something that's, once again, close to my heart. Perhaps I've got too much skin in the game. But if we look at the boards, the non-exec directors of so many listed companies, particularly in South Africa, they tend to be dominated by CAs, by a certain kind of uh, professional background. And we've seen some major corporate governance implosions where brilliant boards stacked with some of the most qualified CAs, academic financial minds in the country. Do we need a change of profile of our boards? Do we need to see 
more people with a reputational lens sitting and perhaps that might make perfect sense financially, but you know, building a mine on a gravesite of an indigenous community is not the right thing to do. Do we need a different profile of non-exec in 2021? I do think we need a new. It's unfortunate that it's packed with CAs. <laughs> but <laughs> with respect. To <laughs> with CAs. respect. Uh, but I, I must underscore that that is a very South African phenomenon. If you look globally um, at the developed markets, such as um, the US and the UK, their boards are a little bit more diversified in terms of not only gender, but generational um, diversification, as you have older board members as well as newer ones. Ones with especially the US market will be quite dominant with technology skill that's coming through and how do you use technology to improve your efficiencies and drive value creation. Um, And there is an element of that coming through in terms of of South Africa, as King Four has also advocated that boards need to be quite diverse, not only from a gender perspective or in the context of South Africa and our legacy race perspective, but generational diversification and cultural diversification. So that brings a lot more debate and a different perspective as to always just looking at the numbers. That sort of leads to another, I suppose, related question client a couple of years back listing on the JSC issued the pre-listing statement 300 plus pages probably seven pages of risks they asked me to do a sort of reputational risk audit just looking at it through a different set of eyes one of the directors for example served on 40 plus boards and I sort of said look I'm can't say it's absolutely risk, but it would seem as if their attention might be a little diluted. Is there a sort of an idea, as as a investment specialist yourself, is there a limit to how many boards in a non-exec should be sitting on from a you know just from a hard positions, hard plays out within the market, the receptiveness to that? We are beginning to see um, shareholders being a little bit more vocal on non-executive directors being overboarded. So. There is already a term that describes what you've just mentioned, Alan, in terms of too many board members and and board members being professional, and that's all they do. The decks that are now going to boards are becoming larger and larger. There's a lot more that boards need to, to deliberate. So although I don't have a hard number, but I would say that board members with more than five non-executive directorships, I think their focus and attention can be diluted as a, as a result of that. An analysis was done recently, uh, not an in-depth analysis, but again, in the context of South Africa, that's difficult to address because companies are trying to find diversification. And also you, you want some board members that have experience and, and know which questions to ask and how to unpick and unpack some of the topics that are being discussed at board level. But yes, I think in a, in a small economy like South Africa's, it is becoming more and more challenging in terms of getting a diverse range of board members who are not potentially overboarded. Thanks, Nikki. Uh, coming into the studio, I know we discussed potentially one question. I threw four surprise ones at you, and I think the fact that you you just gave such uh, great content on those is, is a measure of how immersed you are in the sector. Thanks for sharing with us. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation, Anne. Thank you for listening to Aprio Voice, a podcast from the reputation, management, and strategic communications professionals at the Aprio Group. 
If you would like to find out more about the work we do, visit aprio.co.za. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.